and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Trish McGregor. And Rob McGregor. And our producer and tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular blog posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book, Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. Trish's latest novel is White Crows. And Rob's latest novel is Toolbus. Our upcoming book is called The Shift, Reports from the Mystical Underground. Our guest today is a return visitor, Rick Bedowa, who served 32 years as a Navy diver. He's back to tell us more about his incredible survival stories that are now featured in his book, Breathe, A Master Diver's Survival Tales. He finished his career in 2008 as Command Master Chief Petty Officer and Master Diver, then returned for another three-year stint as an advisor, retiring in 2011. In October 2004, he became the Navy's Command Master Chief of Salvage Diving, and in that role, he managed the world's largest and most diverse diving command with more than 250 personnel operating throughout the Pacific and Indian Oceans, as well as Iraq and Kuwait. I should add that I'm quite familiar with Rick's story since I edited his book. After Rick retired, he moved to Queensland, Australia, where he is married and has two children. One other thing, if you're thinking this introduction doesn't sound like a typical mystical underground interview that explores the paranormal and mysteries of the unknown, you would be wrong. Rick's story is not without some mind-blowing synchronicities, intuitive experiences, and a touch of otherworldliness as well. Well, welcome back, Rick. Sorry for all the confusion. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Hi, guys. How you doing? Good. Yeah. So... We've got to start with your terrifying story that that opens and finishes the book uh, in two thousand in October twenty twenty, which was I believe twelve years after you're out of the Navy uh, and retired from the Navy. You were do you call it free diving or skin diving, Rick? They both mean the same. Thing. Okay, free right. Well. The, new, the new term is free diving. Okay, free diving and uh, the Great Rare. Rare, great barrier reef. So, can you tell us uh, about what happened? Uh, and you know, oh, it was a really big day. I can tell you that. <laughs> Anyways, I went diving with a, a friend of mine down in an area that I don't normally dive in, and uh, it was coming out of a boat ramp called Lacinda, and uh, the reef we were diving on was Britomark. As we went out to Britomark, uh, it looked like it was going to be a fantastic day. We started on the south side of the reef, which uh, as soon as we got in the water, we knew that was a mistake. The water was very dirty, cold. There was very little fish there. So we started moving the boat and hopscotching um, sort of towards the north end. And as we went north, the, the visibility got better and better and better. And then once we got up on the north end, um, once we got up on the north end, it was crystal clear. It was clear as vodka. 
And um, so we hopped in the water and the very first thing I saw was two very large bull sharks. And when we say very large, very large is in a neighborhood of 12, 13 foot. And um, they didn't stay there long and they left. And uh, we swam around a bit, but we really didn't see any fish. And then I turned to go back to the boat. And the moment I turned to go back to the boat, uh, there was a large item on the surface. And at first it startled me because it was so big. But then I recognized it to be a, a gentle uh, whale shark. And uh, the whale sharks was probably 25 feet long, wow. five feet across. And uh, it swam right up to me and uh, uh, all the way to my hand. And I gave its nose a rub and then it slowly turned and swam away. Now, why that's significant is uh, my best friend over here uh, lost his wife a couple years ago from brain cancer. And she said to uh, me when right before she passed away that one day she was going to come back and visit us as a whale shark. And oh, her wow. husband said, well, that would be a neat trick because I've been diving here 40 years and I've never seen a whale shark. Wow. And, uh, just to have that experience. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, it meant a lot. So we got in the boat and I asked my friend, cause he's a GoPro guy, uh, if he had recorded it and he said he, he, he thought so. And then he said, Oh, okay. I said, well, we better get going. Cause it's getting kind of rough. And uh, um, he said, no, I got one more spot over here and kind of argued a little bit, you know, just, nah, we don't really need, it's getting rough. You know, we got plenty of fish, let's go home. And he said, no, one more spot, Rick. So we went to one more spot and it was uh, a bit of reef in amongst like a, a hundred square yards of white sand. I mean, really, you could see it as we coasted up to it, stuck out, you know, plain as day. And uh, we got in the water and there was a lot of fish. And uh, um, the top of the reef was about the top of the reef was about 40 feet. The bottom of the ocean was about 80 feet. And um, anyways, I made a nice slow dive and, and landed on top of the reef. And uh, um, I shot a fish. It dispatched instantly, which meant that there was no blood. There was no wiggling. The fish didn't feel anything. But that noise of pulling the trigger, I guess, uh, alarmed. Uh, a bull shark that was quite a ways away and it came rushing in on the bottom of the ocean and where I couldn't see it. And it was probably doing hundred miles an hour. And, um, it came across the bottom, like very, very fast. My partner said came straight up like a missile. And then when it popped over the edge of the reef, it was only about six feet from me. And, uh, this shark would have been more than three feet wide at its head and, uh, 12 feet long. And uh, I smashed it in the face as, as hard as I could, but it was going so fast that uh, it was going so fast that it did nothing to it. And uh, and I rolled to my right, and when I rolled to my right, it bit me twice. And then after it bit me, it um, I could see in his eyes that it was scared, and it actually turned 180 degrees and left just as fast as it came. And then it took a few seconds for my mind to. to to kind of analyze what just happened. And the first thing in my voice, uh, my head was Forrest Gump's voice and said, that thing just beat you. <laughs> and then it was Rick's voice and it said, that thing just bit you, get out of the water now. So about that time I was enveloped in uh, uh, a red cloud of blood that I could, it was so thick and dense, I couldn't even see. And uh, I knew it was a very bad bite. And uh, 
So couldn't you uh, started, feel it? It bit your leg, right? Not much. Not much at all. I think what I think the reason why I didn't feel it is it severed the nerve straight away. And uh, uh, yeah, I lost my perineal nerve uh, on the whole ordeal. And, uh, you know, it, it's a 600 pound shark that ran into me. So the, the, the act of it running into me and getting bit right. at the same time, the running into me took a lot of that bite away. And um, anyway, so I started swimming to the surface. I didn't know if the shark was going to come back or not. Um, I could not see from my waist down. There was so much blood in the water. I could not see my legs and I could not see my fins. And um, when I was just a couple of feet from the surface, my partner grabbed me. But then we split up quickly because, you know, one of us was going up on the right hand side of the boat. And the other one was going up on the left hand side of the boat. And so uh, um, I actually swam to the uh, left hand side of the boat, the port side of the boat. And I crawled right up in the boat using my arms. And it was actually pretty easy. It must have been so much adrenaline in me. And when I fell into the boat, I fell into this lounger that the boat had. And uh, when my dive partner finally got in the boat, I calmly just said, three minutes, Pete. And he said, three minutes for what, Rick? I said, you only have three minutes to save my life. Take my weight belt off, take the weights off, and get it on my leg as high as you can, and, and get it as tight as you can. Well, the first belt he put on me, I knew wasn't tight enough because they teach us in the military. You know, they, for 20 years, they've been teaching us about IED uh, um, injuries and, and, and how to deal with it. That's how I knew three minutes. And, um, but he, it, and they tell us to, when we tighten something up to tighten it up until the patient screams and then go two more clicks. So Jeez. I knew it was nowhere near Jeez. being tight enough. So I asked him to take his weight belt off and do the same thing. And when he did that, his belt broke. And so was, all we had was the one ill-fitting, uh, um, weight belt. And I was probably fading in and fading out at this point. I asked him, uh, I said, just get, get me out of here. And, and uh, so I asked him for my uh, bag. And in my bag, I had a satellite phone. I wanted to call my wife. And uh, so while he was getting the boat ready to go. He, he screamed that he saw a much larger boat. Should, should he transfer me to a boat? And I said, yes. And I'm trying to dial my wife, which on a satellite phone, I only had to hit three buttons because her number was pre-programmed. And one second, the phone would be crystal clear. And the next section, the phone would be all blurry. And when it was clear, I tried to hit the three buttons, but I could only hit one or two buttons. And then finally I got frustrated and I threw it down. And I just told my friend, just told my friend to tell, tell my wife that I was sorry. Anyways, he found, he pulled up to uh, the bigger boat and he screamed. There was three men in that boat. Paul was the boat owner about my age. Um, and there was a massive man in the boat named Bastion. He was about seven feet tall. And, uh, and um, my dive partner screamed over to him that there's been a shark attack. One man drove in the water and came on board. That man was a doctor. And he was Aren't a cardiologist. Lucky? Yeah, I, uh, he was a pediatric cardiologist. <clears throat> so they got me transferred into the boat. Once they got me transferred into the boat, they, uh, um, they laid me on my back. And the moment they laid me on my back, it was difficult to breathe. And I was screaming, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And uh, they cut my wetsuit off me, and I, I, I can't breathe. It was as if an elephant standing on my chest. The pain in my, in, in my chest was so bad. And I've been hurt, hurt, and re-hurt in the military. Nothing could compare to that. And I was trying to wiggle around to get away from the pain. And as I wiggled, I wiggled to my right. And the moment I wiggled to, on my right side, 
the pain went away and it dawned on me, you're having a heart attack. And uh, oh, I'm, somebody that, I'm somebody that knows I got a good heart. I served 30 years in the military working out every day. I knew I had a good heart. So I knew that if I was having a heart attack, it was from loss of blood. So before I started losing consciousness, I brought both of my knees up to my chest as far as I could to hopefully pinch, pinch off that, uh, my femoral artery. And, uh, and then I closed my eyes and I had three good breaths. And as a free diver, you're probably more in tune to that than a normal person. But these three good breaths felt very good to me. And it dawned on me. That was my, my key. If I could slow my heart, I could, if I could slow my pulse down, uh, I would, in fact, be pumping less blood and, to my extremities, and therefore, uh, um, I might just survive. So I just slowed everything down. I've always had the ability to slow my heart down to 40 beats. The average person in, sh in shape is probably 60, 66 if they're in very fit. Uh, but most people, 60 years old, their heart rate's up around 70 to 80. Um, so, but I've always had the, the ability to slow my heart down free diving. And, uh, and the only reason I know that is because I've had so many surgeries throughout my life. Uh, every time I'm in surgery, uh, um, the, the nurses and anesthesiologists always complain that my heart rate goes below 40 and sets off all the alarms. And so, anyways. <laughs> what was the cardiologist so, doing at this point? <laughs> the cardiologist at that point wasn't doing anything because I was breathing on my own. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, it was very traumatic for him and the other two people in the boat. And he we had a long conversation afterwards and said and he said, you know, I'm a surgeon and when I do surgery, I have a whole staff, it's very controlled. And it's, it's in an environment that we can control. There was nothing I could mm -hmm. control that day with you. And I felt helpless to, to a certain extent. You were breathing. And uh, so uh, it was just left up to me for the most part to, uh, to uh, ensure that I kept breathing for the next 90 minutes. 90 minutes is a long time when you're bleeding out. So um, I remember... I remember uh, um, getting back to the boat. I remember going by what I call Sugar Pier. It's about a mile long. And, and the boat stopped pounding as much, and it was getting flatter. I said, oh, I must be going near, getting near Pick Sugar Pier. Only a couple miles left. Just hang on, hang on, hang on. And then, and then, it can't, then I could feel the, the boat going like through glass, calm water. And I was like, oh, it's only a mile left, mile left. Hold on, hold on, hold on. And then when the boat slammed into reverse, then I knew that I was at the boat ramp and I passed out. Jeez. They, the EMS people and the doctors, there was three doctors on the scene. EMS was there. A helicopter was standing by. The boat ramp was shut down. I don't know how many police officers and firefighters were there keeping everybody away. They had so much time prior to me getting there. They erected a tent so that they could work on me in the shade. You know, and they came up with a plan. They picked four biggest firefighters and said, you get them out of the boat. You get them up here. EMS, your job is to stop the bleeding. One doctor hooked me to a uh, defibrillator. Another doctor, bless her heart, her name's Dr. Ann from, from uh, Ingham. She came down and got the cannula in me. And uh, it's really hard to get a cannula into somebody when there's no blood in you. So I actually lost seven liters of blood, 14 units. Jeez. And uh, the, my body had no blood. My heart wasn't beating. And I wasn't breathing. 
and I was dead. And she got a cannula into me and started squeezing blood into me. About that time, the one doctor was about ready to defibrillate me. Uh, that blood hit my heart. I and mean, the moment it hit my heart, it kickstarted my whole system. And I sat up and said, uh, um, you're hurting me. Get off my leg. And, uh, and I scared everybody. Um, they said I was like a zombie, a possessed zombie when I, when I sat up. And they, so they knocked me out. And, um, yeah, they gave me as much blood as they had. And uh, the, the doctor from Ingham, Dr. Ann, said, this is all the blood we have. If you, if you run out of blood, feed him saline. And so uh, uh -huh. uh, in the chopper, and we were in a turbo chopper doing 200 miles an hour, uh, they ran out of blood halfway to the hospital. And so they fed me saline. And the moment they fed me saline, they, I went into cardiac arrest. Now, I had to look all these things up. And uh, cardiac arrest means you lose the electricity going to your heart. A heart attack is from lack of blood or uh, a blood blockage. And um, I was delivered to the Townsville Hospital as a code red blanket. Most people never heard of a code red blanket. It's not an Australian thing, it's an international thing. You've heard probably of code red, which is a, uh, uh, a heart problem. You've heard of code blue, which is a respiratory problem. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you never hear of code red blanket is the death problem. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, Basically, the, you go from the chopper right into surgery. There is no emergency room, and doctors are waiting to save your life in the emergency room. And the reason you never hear of a code red blanket is because everybody usually dies. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I lived and I lived through this experience, I was 59 years old. It just goes to show that uh, it wasn't my time. Well, wow. Rick, what... Okay, you were, you were clinically dead. What, do you remember anything from being clinically dead? I, you know, there was, I don't remember waking up. Uh -huh. I don't remember. My wife actually made it to the helicopter before they took it off. They tried to, the police tried to stop her, but she busted right through them and uh, um, she was able to give me a kiss. But I don't remember that. I don't remember the chopper ride. And then when I was in the hospital, the, the first surgery, which was that day, is all they did was clamp everything off in an attempt to save my life. They had to make a very large incision um, about my pelvic area to reach in and grab my uh, femoral artery to clamp it off. And, uh, and so the first day, they just um, saved my life. Now, there was uh, speculation that I was going to be brain dead. They didn't know how long I, I didn't have blood to my brain. And they also fed me synthetic blood. Synthetic blood is the newest thing, I guess, nowadays. It's not type A or O or whatever. It's uh -huh. synthetic. But it becomes toxic after about five units. And uh, nobody was counting, but they fed me 14 units of synthetic blood. So there was a, uh, um, a huge misunderstanding of whether or not I was going to be brain dead or not. So uh, they called my wife. She was uh, on her way back home to get the kids and then come drive all the way back to the hospital, which is a couple hours away. And uh, they said, we're going to wake him up from a coma. We need to know if he's brain dead. And she said, okay. And uh, so they woke me up. And I, of course, I couldn't talk. I had hoses in my nose and my mouth and every other orifice you can think of. And uh, they gave me a small board with a, a, a eraser pen. And uh, they said, do you know who you are? And I had to write my name. They said, do you know why you're here? And I drew a shark. And they said, uh, 
okay, we got to ask you some hard questions. Name your sons. I had to name my sons. And they asked me, what is your son's birthday? Luckily, I knew. And uh, <laughs> I wrote it down. And they put me back into a coma. And they called my wife and said, uh, um, and told her that my brain was functioning. But it was a, I was a long ways out of the woods. So the main surgery, they didn't even know at that point if they were going to remove my leg. If you can imagine, uh, um, you can't imagine. How they put it back together, I have no idea. So uh, the main surgery was the following day. And it was uh, over 12 hours. And wow. they got great orthopedic surgeons, vascular, vascular surgeons, uh, plastic surgeons, uh, pain management doctors. And uh, that was the next day. And then they needed- Did they keep uh, you in a coma until that yes. second- uh-huh. Yes. And so, uh, um, and then they, the following day, they needed a fair bit of skin. So they removed it off my back. And they patched up the hole that was in the back of my leg. And I think they woke me up somewhere around Thursday, which is four days later. And uh, when they first woke me up, everything was blurry, sort of blurry. And um, I I could tell there was people around me, but they looked all, everything looked blurry. And then I felt my wife's hand. And the moment I felt my wife's hand, um, my eyes started getting clearer and clearer and i could tell that the light in the room was natural light it wasn't light from the, i could uh-huh. tell that there was a window and, and natural light was coming in so that put a smile on my face that meant i survived and then i reached down to feel my leg and my wife told me that i still had my leg hmm. yeah. you have nightmares um <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have, I get nightmares or night terrors from, uh, um, I've got a fair bit of PTSD from the military. So, uh, but I don't, everyone, everyone asks me all the time, do I have PTSD from the shark incident? No. And they asked me why. And I was like, most PTSD in the military has to do with guilt. Could I have done something better? Uh, what if I'd done this? Maybe this person wouldn't have got hurt or something relating to right. that in particular case. It was just a shark doing what a shark does, and uh, I saw it bite me. I saw it leave. I saw myself get out of the water. Therefore, there's there's no guilt right. associated for me. Um, you know, I'm still a little wary around sharks, but I just came back from Tahiti, and the reason I went to Tahiti spearfishing is because they have so many sharks. And in the first <laughs> few days while I was there. <laughs> The first few days I was there, uh, I was nervous, but by the time I left, I was back to normal. But you were told that you should never go uh, free diving again, right? Uh, Didn't the doctor say that? uh, First first of all, you were supposed to be in the hospital for months, weren't you? And you got out in eight weeks, 12 weeks? Not even. uh, uh, They told my wife, uh, they told my wife that uh, um, I would be in the hospital for four to six months. And uh, around the uh, three and a half week mark, uh, my my plastic surgeon doctor came in. Uh, she was a lady, nice, very nice. She came in. She said, I'm going to help you lift your legs out of bed. I said, okay. And I put my jello down and she lifted my legs out of bed and she helped me sit up. And, I, and she just put her hands out. She goes, give me your hands. And I put my hands out and she said, stand up. Wow. And I said, you sure? She goes, stand up. And I stood up. Then they went and got me a walker. 
I took that one for one lap around the entire floor and I was like, get, get, get rid of that. Bring me a set of crutches. And I only <laughs> used one crutch and held on to the rail and I would go around the laps on the floor. Then I got rid of the crutch and I was out of the hospital in a little less than a month. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Did now, they tell you, you you would never dive again or you shouldn't? I think you mentioned that. They, I mean, I, I have been, I have been told uh, that never, I could never dive again, but that was, uh, um, uh, when I had shoulder surgery back in Hawaii, um, I sort of knew something was wrong with my bones from diving in the Navy. And, uh, so the doc and then my surgeon who had done 12 previous surgeries on my bones, um, he felt the same thing. So he brought in a pathologist and they looked at my shoulder that they cut out. And, uh, the pathologist came in and gave me the great news that I have, a um, osteonecrosis from diving in the Navy, which huh. basically means my joints are dying. And, uh, and he said, uh, no more diving. I said, well, if you're, if you're going to take diving away from me, spearfishing away from me, you might as well just give me a pill right now and, not, and let's just end <laughs> it right now. But my surgeon knew who, what I did. And he, and he said, no, Rick's no longer a, a diver. Uh, Rick just holds his breath, goes down and shoots fish and comes back up. He goes, <laughs> okay, that's, that's acceptable, but n- never again do I ever want you breathing underwater uh, yeah. on that huh. Rick, you uh, sent me a photo of a fish that looked huge. Uh, its head looked bigger than your head uh, a couple <laughs> days ago. What was that? That's called a dog tooth tuna. It's uh, probably the strongest fish in the ocean. And for a spear fisherman, that's the holy grail. And oh, really? uh, I went to Tahiti. Yeah, I went to Tahiti. And uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was a it was a good fish. It was a good. It was deep water. It was unexpected, and uh, it was a great shot. And it was a good fight. It took me about fifteen twenty minutes to get it under control. And uh, how much yeah, did it weigh? One hundred and fifty five pounds. Oh, jeez, uh, huge. Yeah. Are those yeah. are they edible? Sure. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, then you say sure, but who knows? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, John, can you bring up that photo by any chance? I sent that to you. Yeah, I wasn't ready for that, but yeah, I can try. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I was going to mention it earlier to have that ready. Yeah, yeah uh, we'll keep talking. Yeah, keep talking. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll find it. Yep. Yeah. So, Rick, uh, your book now. Uh, first of all, I want to say when I tell people about you and the book, the typical response was, "Was he a Navy SEAL?" Can you explain the difference between being a Navy diver and a SEAL? Because that seems to be uh, yeah. one well, you know, confusion. Many, so, many, many years ago, the, the Navy branched uh, uh, out a frogman, Navy frogman. And basically, it took a Navy frogman many years ago, and it, it, it took us into three different paths. One is deep sea diver, one is explosive ordnance diver, and the other one was frogman, and then in the 80s turned into SEALs. Um, Basically, a SEAL is uh, uh, a direct action uh, commando, and uh, the only time really SEALs are in the water diving is to get from point A to point B. They're not the people that do work underwater. Those are Navy divers, and, um, uh-huh. and so uh, a Navy diver's job is anything that lies on the bottom of the ocean, floats, and, and has like a ship or a submarine and has work to do on it. So. We're the workers underwater. Navy SEALs are commandos. They use the water, uh, and not taking anything away from their job. They use the water to go from point A to point B, much like parachuting for them. 
They're going from point A to point B to get on the ground to do a mission. Their missions are all above ground. Navy divers' missions are all below water. That's the best way to. Huh. What, all right, what and, a, and before before you go any further, uh, there, oh, <laughs> there we go. That was God. Okay, that head is much bigger. It's really is half. The head is half uh, your size from your teeth. waist up. <laughs> I didn't. It's know taller had, than I am. About, yeah, it's about wow. six and a half feet tall. Wow, six and a half. You said, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yep. Now, where else do these these fish swim besides Tahiti? I mean, are they all over? Oh, the they're. They're in the Pacific, Indo-Pacific, um, and uh, they, yeah, they, they normally live around uh, 300 feet, 400 feet, and, but they come up onto mm-hmm. the reef to feed, and then they go right back down. They don't live on the reef, mm-hmm. uh, not, not the shallow reef that we can get to as free divers. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. uh, a good time to hunt them is late in the afternoon, and what we do is we put flashers in the water that mimic a wounded fish, and they, and they come up to attack it. Uh, and hopefully we can get to them in time to to shoot them. Yeah. Now you you had been around sharks many times, hadn't you? Before uh, your experience, uh, you know, after, uh, in twenty twenty, uh, and you you weren't yeah. really concerned about them too much. It seems. No, I've dove some of the sharkiest places in the world: uh, San Benedicto Island in off of Mexico, Socorro Island. Uh, I've been to Tahiti. Uh, um, prior to my bite four times. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of places in the world that have a lot more sharks. But for whatever reason, last five years, things have changed here in my own backyard. Ten years ago, I never saw a bull shark here. And, uh-huh. uh, and now they're everywhere. Um, and, Any idea know, why? Case in point, three years, three years before I was bit, uh, a good mate of mine, I was diving with him, and he lost his leg. Um, and I rescued him. And uh, so for the last five years, uh, they have been, uh, they have been very, very numerous here. And, and another thing too, is, is all our small sharks, there's usually a lot of small sharks on the reef that don't bother you. Uh, they've disappeared. And what is a bull shark's favorite thing to eat? A smaller shark. Oh, so uh, it's, it's as if the bull sharks moved in, ate all the small sharks. And now is all we, we have are these 12 and 13 foot monster bull sharks. Um, so I wasn't what really worried eat? about sharks. What do they what eat? Are they, what Anything are they eating? They, they, they're, they're, their favorite food to eat is smaller sharks. Uh-huh. Just like a tiger shark's favorite food to eat is a turtle. Or a uh-huh. hammerhead's favorite food to eat is a stingray. Well, mm-hmm. a bull shark's favorite food to eat is a smaller shark. Or mm-hmm. anything it can fit in its mouth. Yeah, well. Hmm. So, during your time in the Navy, one of the things you were doing was occasionally change the propellers on huge ships but uh prior to this time weren't propellers changed on dry dock and you you but you were involved in the in the water question yeah that's a good question um the average cost well when i retired the average cost to put a navy ship into dry dock is no less than four or five million dollars uh and uh and they, they used to, a long time ago, put submarines and ships into dry dock and then change the propeller and then put them back into the water. And, uh, um, but Navy divers have been doing it for, well, we've been doing it since I was in, since, since the 70s and 80s. We've been, we've been doing it. And, uh, and that way, um, 
preventing, you know, a lot of loss of money for them to go into dry dock. And the other thing too is we can do it much quicker in the water than they can put a ship in dry dock and do it in, in, in air. So uh, um, typically to do a uh, propeller change, I'll give it five days is, is probably the average time to do a propeller change. But uh, um, I remember one time uh, back in the early 80s or mid 80s, uh, it was December 23rd. And uh, we had a propeller change to do on a submarine and we knocked it out in 16 hours. Oh, jeez! How large are these propellers? Oh, they can be as large as uh, 110,000 pounds and in diameter, um, maybe uh, 20, 22 foot in diameter. And you you said uh, at one point that the nut holding in the propeller is as large as like a Volkswagen. (laughs) It's about, well, it weighs that much. The the nut that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's an outboard engine or a big Navy ship or submarine. They all are held in place the same way. Uh, You have the propeller that slides on a shaft. And then right behind that propeller, there is a nut that holds, that locks that propeller onto the shaft. Whether it's a, a, a little tiny rowboat or it's the big Navy ship, it all is the same thing. Well, this nut, uh, like the nut on a cruiser, for instance, is about five feet, maybe six feet in diameter. Whereas the nut that's on a submarine is probably more like four feet in diameter. Wow. Hmm. And a, the, on a cruiser, that, that nut can weigh almost 2,000 pounds a ton. I bring this up because uh, you had an incident where it fell off uh, when you're trying to remove it, uh, or one of your team was uh, That's correct. Doing the uh, <laughs> divers that were in the water removing the nut, which goes fairly easy, there's a catcher that they, when they unthread the nut, it goes onto a catcher. And it's typically a very easy job. Uh, they obviously weren't paying attention and they didn't have the catcher arranged right. And for whatever reason, this 2000 pound nut dropped to the bottom and sunk into the mud. Yeah. And it was about uh, 80 feet deep uh, water. Was it 70 or 80? Well the, bottom, well, the bottom where the mud started was about 50 feet deep. And when I tunneled down to it, it was deeper than um, the tunneling jet that I was using, which is called the ditch witch. And that ditch witch was 20 feet long. And uh, the divers that were tending me, they no longer could see that pipe. So I was deeper than 70, but probably less than 80. And then you turned it off, right? <laughs> well, I was told prior to using it by the, by the lead divers where it came from to be very careful around my hands because it was strong enough to pick up like a cannonball. And they said, don't get your hand anywhere near it or it could hurt you. So because I tunneled down and the tunnel was very narrow, less than the tunnel would have been less, probably only. Uh Uh-oh. We lost his. Hold on. We we lost our audio. Lost the audio. John, can you hear us? Well, maybe it's here. No. Uh, I can hear. Um, Could you hear Rick? Can you hear us now? Yep, lost Rick. Hello, hello. Okay, okay. got you back. Okay, you're back, John. Okay, all right. So uh, you're talking about the ditch witch and uh, yeah. what happened? Well, as I was tunneling down and when I hit something solid, um, before I squatted down to feel to make sure it was the nut, I turned the ditch witch off. And uh, then I reached down. 
and I could feel the top of the nut and I reached my curled my fingers inside the nut and I could feel threads. And I said, yeah, top side, this is red diver. I've got it. And then about that time, uh, the tunnel collapsed. And, uh, at first I didn't think any big deal about it. I wasn't hurt. I had plenty of air and, uh, but I didn't think about exposure and how long it would take to get out. And it was when the tunnel uh, collapsed, it wasn't loose mud. It was like gray clay. And it was as if I was cemented and my hands were nowhere near the valve that I needed to turn on. Uh, the guy I worked for, a uh, Navy master diver that I worked for, Gary Chancellor, he came on the, um, the speaker and uh, my communications and he said, Ricky, how you doing? I said, I'm, I'm okay. He goes, turn the ditch witch back on. He said, I got a problem. I can't get to it. He goes, what do you mean you can't get to it? I said, I, I can't move. I can't even move my fingers. And uh, he goes, so when I said that, if you can imagine the panic topside and um, he had a fair idea and he was thinking about exposure. Now, remember, I said I was deeper than 70 feet. So to be on a no decompression limit, seven, you can go to 70 feet for 50 minutes. But if you're over 70 feet and not quite 80 feet, you can stay there for 40 minutes. Well, it would take them close to three hours to get me out. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, but <clears throat> I ended up there. They came up with a plan to get me out. And, uh, but I, I started by just moving one finger and then I would move, move one finger. Then I could move two fingers and I could move four fingers. And then, you know, after an hour and a half, I could do this. And I was starting to inch my way to the, to the valve. And then finally I was shivering beyond belief. I couldn't even talk. Oh. And uh, I said, topside red, I got the valve. And uh, the master driver came on. He goes, he goes, you can turn the valve on, Ricky. I said, yes. And he said, uh, he goes, we're about ready to put the divers in the water to come get you. And I said, uh, I can turn the valve on. He goes, all right, we'll get you out of that hole. I said, oh, no. I said, I'll turn this valve on. And uh, you have those divers bring down a Kevlar line for me to tie off this nut. And we argued for a few seconds. I said, I'm not coming out until I tie this nut. I don't want anyone else to have to go go through this so just give me a line and i'll tie this thing off and then and then we can all go home and so that's what happened two divers came down and one of them crawled down the tunnel head first tapped me on my helmet and passed me a line i tied off the nut and then they pulled me out oh. did you how long were you in a but decompression I, well i what i did omit de decompression so i had to do a treatment table six maybe treatment table sick in a, in a decompression chamber it's about six hours i think wow how many times I'll, have I'll, you done that over the years <laughs> I've never gotten decompression sickness, but I've omitted D several times. And that's yeah. probably what gave me uh, uh, osteoporosis. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, wasn't there another ditch witch that they could bring down to blow, blow open? It was the only ditch witch on the East Coast. <laughs> and uh, the, way that they, the way that they were going to come and get me was not using a ditch witch. Uh, it was they were going to take a, a two and a half inch fire hose off the ship and a suicide nozzle and just blast their way down to me. Uh, now, 20 feet of blasting down to a person, I mean, it would have been hard going. I mean, I don't think I would have got out in three hours. I could have froze to death. I don't know. Yeah. God. Speaking of freezing to death, the another story that really is <laughs> crazy and dramatic is when you went diving in Alaska, in, in Alaska <laughs> in 60 below zero weather <laughs> Fahrenheit. That's so we went to Alaska. I was when I was with the Marines. Uh, uh, the commandant of the Marine Corps asked me if uh, if the Marines 
uh, forest recon unit could dive in cold water. They had, if they possess the ability to dive in cold water. And I said, no, they don't, but I could teach them. Uh, but we don't possess the gear. And, and he said, how much money would you need for the gear? And I said, how many Marines am I talking about? And I had just came off a mission with them and we did some really good work with eight men plus me. He goes, well, you've already proved that you can do a lot with eight men. So I say eight men plus you. And I said, all right, we need 50,000, which to him is just a drop in the bucket. He goes, done. And I said, we also need to go somewhere to acclimate ourselves. The job, the job we were doing, it was on the northern end of uh, Norway. And I said, I want to go to Alaska for a month prior to going to Norway. And I do want to come home. And um, he said, fair enough. So we picked Seward, Alaska. It was the middle of winter. It's very temperate. The bay never freezes over. But lo and behold, when we got there, it was the coldest winter in 100 years. And uh, <laughs> the air temperature was minus 60. But uh, um, it was a good place to go and get acclimated, really. By the time we went over to Norway, it was minus 10 there. And uh, we didn't even have our jackets on in minus 10. So it, the, the, plan, the plan worked perfectly. But, uh, yeah, minus 60, I don't ever want to see that again. Yeah, but it, it was worse for the people who were out of the water than the ones that were in, right? I mean, they were in. Tw- oh, what? much worse, much, 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 much worse. People were fighting to get in the water because the water temperature was 28. So salt water <laughs> freezes at 28. Um, and uh, so 28 to minus 60, the water was 90 degrees warmer than the air temperature. So, yeah, everybody wanted to be in the water. It was like a sauna to them. <laughs> but a funny story was after we got him out of the water for the first day, there was this coffee shop, soup shop, just right across the road. And there was like 10 feet of snow on the, on the ground and, you know, plows, you know, plows were pl- plowing the, uh, the roads and stuff. So I said, come on, let's go across the street. So we went across the street and you have to imagine that we're, we're all dressed in black and we're all pretty fit <laughs> young men. And, uh, there was about 20 people in the coffee shop and I walked in there and they all turned around to look at us. And I was the first one to speak. I said, if living here and having to work in 60 below qualifies you to a man, to be a man, then I'm going to be the first one to confess. I'm not a man. And they all started laughing and they all started laughing at us. And he goes, you know what? We were in here saying the same thing about you. He goes, young man, if we go outside, we're only outside for 15 or 20 minutes. You guys have been out there for two hours. Uh, and then they treated us. They gave us free soup and, uh, uh, and free coffee, all the coffee and soup that we wanted. And we just sat there for a couple hours talking to them all. Hmm. Rick, how did you end up in Australia? Oh, uh, um, so I, 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 during my time in the Navy, I owned a company called Aimright. It was a spear gun company. And uh, I always uh, sponsored kids spearfishing events. And so the largest spearfishing uh, uh, tournament in America is the St. Pete Open in Florida. And uh, I would always give first, second, and third place spear guns to the kids. Uh, one particular year, they called me and they said, Rick, would, uh, would you take on the girls' division as well? And I said, why? And they said, oh, well, the, the sponsor for the girls' division uh, pulled out, and now we need a sponsor real quick. I said, sure. It's not really that big of a deal for me to bring six guns if I'm bringing three guns. So. Anyways, while I was there and we were handing out the guns to the winners, uh, the ladies, uh, my wife, Angela, my very beautiful wife, Angela, took first place. Uh. And uh, so I, gave her, uh, I gave her a spear gun, but it doesn't stop there. We didn't, have, we didn't even talk there. And uh, about a month later, now I was single for five years between uh, marriages. 
And about a month later, I get a text. Now, this text was back in early 2000. And uh, if you remember, we didn't get very many texts back then. If right. you got a text, it was like a big You got excited about it, right? <laughs> so I was sitting on the beach in, in Hawaii, and I got a text. And I said, yeah, I don't know if you remember me, but my name's Angela. And uh, uh, I won first place at the St. Pete Open. <laughs> you gave me a gun. I absolutely love it. And she said, I haven't stopped sleeping with it yet. And I was thinking to myself, is she flirting? Well, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to look like a, a moron. And if I, say, if I don't say anything at all, I'm going to look uncaring. And I do remember how beautiful she was. So I wrote back two words, two words, lucky gun. And that's it. We started talking. We started talking every day for like four or five hours a day, which is a really long time on the phone, I know. And I went to visit her a couple of times and she said she was moving back to Australia. And uh, I said, well, why don't you stop in Hawaii and spend some time with me for a month or so? And, and I'll show you all of Hawaii. I'll take, I'll take a month off. And so that was the game plan. And she never left. All right. That's great. That's a good, <laughs> good story, great Rick. Great story. Yeah. <laughs> so and then we had a house in Hawaii. We had a house here in Australia. And we would pick the best six months here and the best six months there. Go back and forth. I had the spear fisherman's dream uh, retirement. But then we had kids. And uh, we were able to do that until the first one got became six years old. But once he started school, that was it. We had to pick one place or another. Right. And um, we picked Australia. Yeah. Are your kids into spearfishing? Uh, not yet. One of them is just turning 12 this month and uh -huh. the other one just turned eight. Oh, so, okay. uh, and which is fine by me. They don't have to take up spearfishing, but uh, if they do, I'll be there for them. Yeah. That's great. So Rick, uh, the way we met was through a British company in London, which uh, puts uh, together authors who are working on their books with uh, ghostwriters. Uh, you're living in Australia. I'm in South Florida. And it turns out we have this strange connection of, at a place in the Florida Keys. You, Sugarloaf. Sugar, Sugarloaf Key. You Sugarloaf bought, Key. Yeah, you bought a property. <laughs> On what was the I name? did uh, flying fish lane flying fish lane right yep. yes I bought a property I bought a property on the end for my retirement uh, house and uh, um and it had 150 feet of uh, uh, dock space mm -hmm. yeah I could you know, what a spear fisherman's dream to live there you could just pull up every day to your to your own <laughs> house exactly and uh, uh, I had the I had the property for. Uh, eight years, maybe six or eight years. And then uh, um, I got a letter from Monroe County that said that there's a building moratorium on uh, Sugarloaf Key and I'll never be able to uh, build a house there. Uh, and that I had to, I had to accept their offer and they paid me what I paid for the lot eight years prior. And even though the, the, the property then was probably worth four times as much, I'll tell you exactly. I paid $65,000 for, the, uh, for the, uh, the property. But when I got that letter, the property was worth $300,000. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I got a lawyer. I hired a lawyer down in uh, Monroe County. And they said, there's absolutely nothing you can do. Um, you're you know, very sorry. You know, good people get screwed all, all the time. And <laughs> it's your turn. So there was absolutely nothing I could do. They said there was never going to be any building on that lot. Which is and not I true. I had to sell it back to the county, <laughs> yeah. which I did. Yeah, and uh, I was I went down there to Key West with some Marines to do some training with the Marines, and I, 
we were out one day and I said, oh, let me get, let me show you guys where uh, I was planning on building a retirement house. And I told them the story and we drove down to uh, Sugarloaf and uh, we went out to uh, flying Fly fly fish, fish lane, lane there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there sat a million dollar house yep. on right. uh, right. my lot. And yeah. um, I contacted a lawyer again because I wanted to sue the county. And they said, there's nothing you can do about it. I said, how did this happen? And they said, you know, a uh, rich person came in and saw your lot, really liked your lot and said, I want that lot. And then in the county said, oh, sorry, there's a building moratorium. And he goes, well, how's about if I donate $75,000 to the septic sewer uh, uh, system of Monroe <laughs> County? And they said, yeah, that'll do. And yeah. Uh, wow. yeah, good people get screwed all the time. And yeah. that's how I got screwed. Yeah. And meanwhile, we were right in the house next to that lot where we uh, many times we uh, it's it was our uh, literary agent's house. And he he always he only spent like uh, four to six weeks of the year there. And he left it open for us to uh, stay there. And, and so we always marveled at that. House we we knew the too. story about that, that there that that yeah. there was no how why there was no house. I remember Al telling us yeah. that story uh it took me a while to remember all of that uh when we first talked about this but it was the property adjacent to uh al's place where we were we were staying and then he was pissed off when they built a, and he he told us the story from his point of view he didn't like it either that there was that there was not supposed to be a house next door to him <laughs> well i mean in the bigger scheme of things people forget about this you know um i served my country for 32 years I bought a lot to retire on. And, uh, you know, it's a typical exa example of how rich people get over on uh, uh, working class people all the yeah. time. Yeah. And this is exactly what happened to me. And anybody that feels good about what happened to me is not my kind of person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. The, whole, so the whole thing was an absolute scam. Yeah. And they scammed, they scammed my lot off of me. And, uh, you know, I'm just a blue collar worker that served my country. But if you're rich, you can you can do it. And I yeah. it just left a very, very bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Oh, reason. you're a blue collar working for the Navy, but you you rose right to the top of the uh, of your profession. Uh, by the time you're retiring, by the t uh, in your last years, uh, you're had uh, how many people under your command? Well, my command, I was at, I was at the largest U.S. Navy command, and that's uh, um, Mobile Diving Salvage Unit 1 in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. There's about, when I was there, about 250 people and eight uh -huh. dive teams with eight, eight independent master divers, and they all worked for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, uh, I advanced very quickly in the military because it was as if I was doing my hobby. So uh -huh. I was a spear yeah. fisherman before I went in the Navy. I only went in the Navy to be a Navy diver. And because it was my hobby, I advanced uh, very quickly. I think the average time to become a master chief, which is an E9, is about 24 years. Wow. And uh, I, the, the, Navy, the Navy saw it in their best interest to make me a master chief in 14 years. Yeah. So I was only a 33-year-old master chief. Uh, and my, I think uh, I got a letter from the CNO, my commanding officer, and I got a letter from the CNO, Chief of Naval Operations. That said, congratulate Master Chief Patua on uh, being the Navy's youngest Master Chief. It's, it's but, about following your passion. Yeah, but but in the beginning, they kind of tricked you, didn't they? When you first joined, that you you said you wanted they to be a Navy <laughs> driver, and should they at first, sure? At, at first, they tricked. At first, they tricked me. I, 
I said I wanted to be a Navy diver. Now, nowadays, you can actually come in as a Navy diver or a Navy SEAL. But back then, you could not. You had to come in and you had to pick a, uh, a, a job. We call it a job a rate. So you had to pick a rate. And then once you were a rate, you could, uh, um, you could strike to be a Navy diver or Navy SEAL. And uh, so they lied to me by putting me into uh, a gas turbine engines. So I went to school to become a gas turbine engine mechanic. I went to a destroyer and they said, okay, I'm ready to uh, become a Navy diver. And uh, they said, you're never going to become a Navy diver. You're in a critical field, uh, gas turbine engines, and it's just never going to happen. So to make a long story short, uh, I felt that they lied to me. So I got all the paperwork and I forged all the paperwork. And, uh, and that's how I got to Navy dive school. And they didn't catch me. They didn't catch me until the day I graduated. That was a great story they, uh, that you laid once out they, there. Once they, me, once they caught me, they, they told me to change to a source rating to Navy. I had six months to change to a source rating in Navy Diver, and I did. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's <laughs> a great story. story. How you? How you? The did long, that. the long stories in my book. I yeah, think it's right. Chapter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one of the early chapters. So, uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is you actually were in the Marines for a while as well. How did that ha- happen? Well, I wasn't actually in the Marines. I was okay. actually attached to the Marines. Yeah. Just like I was attached to, uh, uh, I was attached with a, to an Army uh, uh, Force, Special Forces ODA team. Uh-huh. Uh, I was attached uh, to uh, uh, the Marine Corps Force Recon team. And basically, they put us in those positions uh, to help our sister, um, our sister units in the diving field. Um, Navy diving is uh, the pinnacle of diving. And so basically they, they would take a master diver like myself and they would put me in force recon to make them better divers. Uh-huh. And actually, they're not divers, they're combat swimmers. To make them better combat and swimmers and to also protect them because uh, to, uh, to produce a Navy diver, I think it's probably around $250,000, To produce a Navy SEAL, it's probably anywhere between a half a million to a million diver, uh-huh. million dollars. And uh, so the last thing we want is there to be an accident and, uh, uh, um, you know, somebody with this much money invested in them. Uh, you know, we obviously don't want anything to happen to them and we don't want anything to happen to the Navy's investment. So they station very senior uh, Navy master divers with these uh, um, direct, direct action teams to oversee their diving program and to, and to ensure they're safe going from point A to point B. But you had to prove yourself, didn't you? I mean, the, uh, the Marines were not uh, uh, looked at. Well, you. first of all, no, no Navy diver, no Navy master diver wanted to work for the Marines. So, uh, <laughs> Those are tough characters you came across. <laughs> That's right. They? So uh, I actually got there. I actually got there because I was having some difficulties at a, uh, um, I actually went to Panama city, Florida and I was the director of diving, fleet diving, and uh, I, I didn't like the job. Uh, I did, me and the commanding officer didn't get along. And so the Navy asked me, hey, uh, we got one job for you and one job only. And uh, I said, what's that? And they said, uh, you can go work for the Marine Corps. I said, I'm on my way. So they sent me up to work <laughs> for the Marine Corps. And I got some good advice along the way. I remember I was a very, very young E-9. Uh, the unit that I went and worked for, they didn't even have an E-9. Their, their most senior person was an E-8. Uh, but I worked directly for a general. And I won't say his name, but he was a good guy. And he was my kind of guy. And he gave me some very good advice. Very first piece of advice, he said, Master Chief, 
If you let somebody junior to you give you shit, you fucking deserve it. You understand <laughs> what I'm telling you? I said, yes, sir. I understand what you're telling me. And, uh, um, and he said, if, as long as you're right, I'll always have your back. So I actually worked for directly for a general and he actually worked for the commandant. So when people, when I interacted with other Marines and other Marines would want to know who I worked for, I'd say, oh, my chain of command is pretty simple. I work for general so-and-so brigadier general such and such and the commandant of the marine corps and uh yeah to have that power <laughs> behind me it made my job so much easier being young and being young uh as a, a, a the youngest navy master diver and the youngest navy master chief it um i think i went went to work for them when i was around 34 i went to work for them and uh i was very very young and i was very very fit so uh, when i showed up they said, you'll do just fine. And, uh, and I did. Uh, I worked out with them. I did everything with them. I, learned, I tried to learn as much from them and that I taught them as me. And I tried to you know, fit in the role as an advisor. But uh, um, you know, I was advising them to do certain missions. And then um, the general that I worked for kind of <laughs> saw that I had interest in that kind of work. So he actually allowed me to do uh, uh, a few real missions with them. And uh, yeah, it was an eye opener to see, you know, how the other side works. So it was yeah. a good tour. Hmm. But they have something in the Marines, at least uh, this uh, unit, uh, where, where, they could, where, where they could challenge another person yeah. uh, to <laughs> basically to a fight. And they, and yeah. they would give the person the... The choice of uh, where this fight, how this, I fight, got it. T tell us. Oh, tell, I know, tell I know what you want. <laughs> All right, so, um, in the very early days of me working for Forest Recon, one of the first things we did was uh, we had a big. Uh, um, it's a training tank, but it looks like a big pool, but it's rather deep. <laughs> and uh, so we went there, and we were going to do Dreger training, which is closed circuit training, and it's a bubbleless rig. And uh, um, anyways, we're setting up at the pool. There was about 50 Marines there. And I had about six guys that worked for me and <laughs> one very massive Marine. And I asked one of the, the Marines to do something. And he gave me a look that an E5 should never give an E9. And I said, Sergeant, come here. And I pulled him over to the side so no one could hear us. And I talked really low so nobody could hear us. I said, I said Sergeant, if I ask you to do something, just do it. Uh, don't look at me like that, ever. And, uh, and then he could tell he, it angered him greatly. And then, uh, uh, and then he got upset and he said, that's it, I'm calling you out. And I didn't understand what this meant. And it might not be in the Marine Corps, but it certainly enforced recon back in those days. And uh, my staff sergeant was my uh, like second in charge. He, he was a great guy, Silver Star recipient. He was no joke. And he stepped between me and this sergeant, and, uh, and he said, no, there will be no challenge. You can challenge me. And, I, and I, I was just trying to find out what this challenge thing was all about. I had no clue. And I'm like, what is he talking about? And he goes, he goes, nothing. I got this, mess, Chief. And I was like, no, I want to know. What is he talking about? He goes, he goes, in this company, a junior person can challenge a senior person to a fight. And I said, are you kidding me? He goes, no. And I'm like, I said, uh, all right. I said, what are the rules? He goes, there are no rules. And I'm like, the only rules are because he's challenging you, you can pick the, the time and the place. I said, okay, fair enough. I choose right now. 
And, uh, and the moment I said that, this Marine just tore off his shirt like he was Hulk Hogan. He was about, at the time, I probably weighed 165 pounds, and he was probably 250 pounds of pure muscle. And, you know, that's what I was banking on. All right. What have I been doing all my life? I've been free diving on my whole life. And I had 4% body fat, and this Marine was probably 4% or less. And I said, and the place I choose is the deep end of the pool. So the Marine, <laughs> being a combat swimmer, he dove in the water, but you know, he thought that his ability was going to be much greater than my ability. The staff sergeant wanted to stop, stop it, and I said, no, I'll be fine. Just make sure we don't go overboard. And he goes, he goes, he goes, Mass Chief, I can't let you do this. He's going to kill you. I said, nah, I'll be right. Don't worry about it. And uh, so I dove in the water and I swam out to him and I knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to wait for me to get close and going to take one almighty big swing. And the moment he did that, I just ducked, un ducked underneath the water and climbed up on his back, got him in a headlock and expelled all my air, just <sighs> blew it all out. And the moment I blew it all out, we tumbled to the bottom of the pool, which was 14 feet. And we actually, because neither one of us had any body fat, we hit the bottom of the, the pool pretty hard on, on his bum, and I still had him in chokehold. And the moment we got there, he was tapping out. He was tapping out. And uh, I only wanted to do this thing one time in my career. So uh, I kept him there maybe a little longer than I should have. I could have kept him there a lot longer. And I pulled him up when he was spitting and sputtering, and they dove in the water, and they grabbed a hold of him. And I was kind of fired up, and I got out of the water. I said, is there anybody else? If there's anybody else, let's just go ahead and do it right now. And then I said to him, I said, I will never challenge any one of you to a fight. But if you challenge me to a fight, you can bet your ass it's going to be in the water. And I never was challenged again. <laughs> that's, that's a great a, that's, story. Yeah, that is a great story. <laughs> I so will tell you, though, when we went up, when we went up to uh, Alaska, that same sergeant, I asked him to do something in minus 60. And we were miserable. We were all miserable. And I saw that look for a fraction of a second. I said, are we going to have another problem? The bay's right there. He goes, no problem with me, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, so your book has been out for several months now. Uh, there it is. Yeah. Uh, so how's it, how's it been going? What kind of reaction have you been getting to breathe? Well, I, you know, I don't really, I don't really know any of the uh, logistics because the publisher keeps that close to his heart. He doesn't, you know, he throw me, he th did throw me a bone a couple of weeks ago and said book sales are going well, but you know, I, I have no idea how many books we're selling, but I, I, I tried to it, find, yeah, I tried to find out myself, uh, since I know the publisher, uh, and he said he was very close to the vest. He said, sales are steady. <laughs> that was his, <laughs> yeah. his comment. You don't get much from him at all. Yeah. But you know, every day or every other day I get people from around the world that I don't know, asking to be my friend on Facebook and sending me a PM that, that, that writes say, Hey, uh, I absolutely loved your book. And, uh, um, you know, it's a fantastic story. Uh, you know, maybe they have some similarities that uh, that cross paths with it. But I mean, everything has overwhelmingly been uh, um, very positive. And of course, all of my friends and people that I know around the world, they've all read it. They, uh, they say it's a very easy read. They can read it in just two days. It should be a movie for a flight. Yeah, it should yeah, be. It'd make a great movie. <laughs> and, um, you know, but everybody so far has absolutely gave me nothing but praise about it, and uh, so I'm very excited that you know something that I wrote as barely a high school graduate, and uh, uh, and the reason why I wrote it 
And most people don't know the reason why I wrote it. The reason why I wrote it is because when I left the hospital, the doctors uh, gathered me and my wife and they said, hey, you know, we're sorry to tell you this, but we really don't know how long Rick is going to live. Uh, this synthetic blood thing, we should have never gave him 14 units of synthetic blood. You know, he could, he could have mental problems. He could just click off the line. We don't know. So when I returned home, uh, my wife brought me my laptop and she said, start writing. Good for her. And she goes, yeah. She goes, and you wrote that draft? Never... You wrote that? that draft in about three months, didn't you? Three to four months? I don't think it was four months. I don't even think it was three months. Some days, <laughs> if I was on a good chapter, I think because I was writing nonfiction and it's my life, I, yeah. I, I know it very well. Right. So, uh, uh, then I, you know, I would just write in these big, ugly blocks and hand it to you, Rob, and then you would make it look pretty. But uh, some, sometimes I could write a, a whole chapter in a day. I would start yeah. at 6 a.m. And, and not stop typing until 9 o'clock at night, and Angela would have yeah. to take the computer yeah. away from me. But it, it went very, very easy. But if somebody was to ask me to write a fiction book, I'd be lost. Yeah. You were very focused on writing your story. Yeah. That, that, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. That's yeah. great. We wanted to see it as a movie. Yeah, you know, <laughs> what's interesting is uh, the other night we went on Netflix and we were looking for something in particular, but this movie came up and uh, what was this we were looking at? I don't want to watch that. It turned it off. And then it came up again and they looked at the, the title of it and it said, keep breathing. I said, well, that's kind of close uh, to book. It's like Rick's book. Uh, Rick's book. <laughs> and so we let's take a look at it. And what is it all? It's a survival story. It's six it episodes. It's great. It's very interesting. We've watched four of the episodes. Probably tonight we'll watch the last okay. two. And uh, if you can look it up on Netflix, keep breathing. Very, very interesting. And it, it's just like a synchronicity for us because it's so close yeah. to the title of your book. And uh, yeah. and there it was. Yeah. Uh, a survive. It's about people ask me all the people ask me all the time if if it becomes a movie, who do you want to be? Uh, uh, who do you want to play with you? And I, I always say the same thing: Mark Wahlberg. I want Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> right. You know. So, uh, yeah. I don't know how I don't know how things become movies, but I did like what somebody wrote. There's a there's a series of books out there, fiction, and it's about uh, I don't know the main character. I think. Uh, was trained by Navy SEALs, which we know are BS. And uh, he works for NCIS. And, and, you know, he's just supposed to be this, you know, super investigator and stuff. And, and anyways, the publisher was really promoting it. And then somebody, I don't know who it was, went on there and said, yeah, you could read that garbage if you like, or you could just pick up a copy of Breathe and it's nonfiction and every <laughs> chapter is exciting. That's <laughs> right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, uh, it. Uh, I was just reading it over the last couple of days. Hey, this is a pretty damn good book. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. it. Is, I mean, it it's a lot of, a lot of, it's, and there's a lot of technical detail, but you spell it out very well, yeah. you know? And uh, so it's, so it's understandable. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's good. Yeah. Well, if well, we ever do do a movie, I've already asked the, uh, if we ever do a movie, I've already asked the staff sergeant that uh, spent my time with me in the Marine Corps for all those Marine Corps stories. Uh, his name is Scott McCarthy. I asked him if he would come on board and be a, a technical uh, oh, advisor for the Marine Corps part because, you know, we would want to get it right. And he's uh, he's already put his hand up for that. So uh, yeah. I never know. One day they might call and say, hey, we want to make a movie out of it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, just one other thing. Uh, at the end of the book, we the, the manuscript we turned in, there were three great letters of reference from uh, top brass of the Navy. Uh, and 
it's not in the book. Did you remove it or did David remove it? You know, I think, uh, I mean, David didn't actually remove it. David had probably a suggestion that we remove it, that the book didn't need it. And, uh-huh. uh, um, and because the, we already had the two annexes, the first annexes, uh, uh, my wife, Angela's, uh, um, words from the time she got the phone call. Okay. And the second annex is, uh, Glenn Dixon and yeah. he gives his account of me saving his life. And right. so I think what it was, was between us both, we, we decided that the book really didn't need the letters of, uh, uh, of accommodation. I mean, I, if, if there was one thing I would have wanted to put in the book that nobody ever asked me about was I had some pretty good photos and, uh, <laughs> of my, uh, you know, of the, of the shark incident you know, or uh, my time in the military and stuff like that. But no one ever asked me, hey, Rick, we need some photos. Yeah, so right. that's the next book, just the photos. <laughs> <laughs> or that could be that could be some good stills for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think I know I know for myself, I, I, I always enjoy it more when I watch a movie and in the very first part of the movie it said this is based on uh, uh, a true, true life story. True story. Yeah. Yeah. Then yeah. I, then I always pay attention more, you know. Uh whereas, you know. Like, for instance, there's Tom Clancy wrote a book. I haven't read very many books in my lifetime, but I liked Tom Clancy. So I read a lot of his books. And uh, um, there was a book that I read. It was probably my favorite book by Tom Clancy called Without Remorse. And uh, I loved it. It was a great book. And I waited 20 years for that book to come out in a movie. And it did. And it's nothing like the book. (laughs) <laughs> they, they they should have just said you know totally nonfiction. I mean, because it was so far fetched, it was just ridiculous. Where the yeah. book was actually doable. Yeah, you know, yeah. Sometimes that really- works. Sometimes it's close, but a lot of times it uh, really strays. Well, if far. they ever do that for me, you know, I'll let them get away with a little bit, but I won't let them get away with too much. I promise you. Yeah. Okay. Great. Good. <laughs> well, great talking to you again, Fantastic. Rick. Enjoyed All right. Great it. talking to you guys too. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. You stay you safe. I will. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.